A few weeks ago, I picked up the telephone and called my college roommate, Laura. What's the matter, I asked. I saw on Facebook that you're asking for prayers for your family, but I don't know what's, what we're praying for, Laura. What, what happened? Laura paused. And then she said in plain English what seemed surreal and impossible. My 22-year-old niece was murdered in her home right here in our neighborhood where you and I grew up. Laura went on to tell me, we don't know what to do. My family and I, we're stuck. We don't know what to do in a situation like this. And there's no one to ask. No one we know has ever been through anything like this. So we don't know if we're doing the right things or the wrong things. A short time after her niece's funeral, a suspect was arrested and charged. But in the weeks since that time, Laura's words have lingered with me, we don't know what to do next. Though most of us will never deal with something that horrific, all of us have moments in life when we too don't know what to do next. We're stuck. In the novel Exit West, we see how these moments of being stuck can unfold not just on a personal level, but on a societal level or on a communal level as well. The novel begins in an unnamed country where civil war is breaking out. Two bright young adults who are falling in love while working and going to school have to make a tragic choice. Will they flee the violence and the crumbling infrastructure, or will they stay home and work for peace and care for their families? They say to one another one night, we can't leave Dad now when his health is so fragile. What if we never see him again? And Dad overhears the conversation, and he comes rushing into the room. No, you must go. It's your only hope for a bright future. But neither option seems good. They are stuck. Who among us has not ever felt stuck or powerless to find a way forward? We feel it sometimes in families, in our careers, even in organizations where we volunteer, and certainly in nations. Today's passage from Acts describes one of these stuck moments in the lives of Jesus' followers. Oftentimes, as Christians, we skip over this moment. We just assume that when the disciples found that the tomb of Jesus was empty on Easter morning, that they immediately formed the church. They took up an offering to care for the widows. They held a hymn sing. They planned a potluck, and they called it good. We've got church happening now. But the scriptures tell us that it was well after that that church happened. The scriptures tell us that when Jesus was gone, his friends were befuddled, stunned. Inertia took over. They didn't just pick up a set of blueprints that Jesus left behind for creating a world of love and harmony. At first, they just stood there like their feet were stuck in cement. The Bible tells us it took 40 days before they found the power to get moving. But 40 days, 40 anything, is Bible speak for a long time. So how long 
might it have been? How long did it take them to move beyond their grief of losing a loved one until they could actually get up in the morning, make a cup of coffee, and face the world again? Do you imagine it was weeks or months or years? The book of Acts invites us to linger a little bit over this in-between moment when the friends of Jesus felt stuck. And today's text shows us two snapshots of their powerlessness. The first, the disciples are standing there on the Mount of Olives with Jesus where they had stood with him in the past, just outside Jerusalem. Jesus is lifted up into heaven, whisk away into the clouds, while they stand there gazing up and chatting with these two angels who have not appeared since they appeared on Easter morning in the garden. And again, they show up with comforting, reassuring words. The other snapshot is in that upper room. They have just hiked back down the mountain. They've gathered in that room where they had broken the bread, and shared the cup with Jesus. And now they're just sitting there looking at each other. None of them dare say a word. No one wants to hear any of the other disciples say, well, he's in a better place now. No one wants to hear those annoying words, it was God's will. They just want to ache because he isn't with them any longer. In this moment... When it seems that God's power has vanished, they gaze outward towards heaven and they gaze into the faces of one another. Maybe one of the ways that the disciples got unstuck was to simply go down memory lane, like going back to the mountain where they had been with Jesus and back into that upper room where they had shared supper with him. When I was a little girl, my dad would take me to his hometown, and we would go on the hometown tour. He would drive me past his elementary school, the first home that he had as a little boy, and then he would drive always to the town park and showed me that huge lawn that he had mowed for 50 cents. And he would tell me all the fun stories of growing up there, When I was a teenager, Dad took me on the tour again. And when I became an adult, Dad took me on the tour again. And when I got married, he took Dave and me on the tour. And when I had Connor, he took the three of us on the tour. And I have to tell you, after a dozen tours, I have it memorized, and I do not need to tour Middle Othian, Texas one more time. But Dad needs to take me there. He needs to show me, because when Dad drives around those corners by the town park, he's back there. Something is evoked inside of him. Well, a few weeks ago, I flew to Connecticut to officiate at a wedding, and as soon as I was in the rental car, I started having flashbacks of my grad school days in Connecticut. I had a a brief time that I could stop my and tour my old grad school campus. As I walked through the halls, I could picture myself opening the mail there at the old metal mailboxes with my classmates. And I remembered studying for finals in that one classroom and then going to chapel. And I was just flooded with these memories. And as I walked through the halls, I could feel 
who I had been back then, and it was eerie. And now I could understand my dad's need to give me the tour of his old stomping grounds. When we remember, we somehow make room for the Spirit to breathe in us. Almost none of my professors are still teaching at the school, but I promise you when I toured there a few weeks ago, I felt every single one of them in the hallways. It was like gazing up into heaven and feeling that even in the absence of them, I knew the power of their presence. We know for sure that something happened to those forlorn followers of Jesus to get them finally unstuck. Something happened to this ragtag group of broken-hearted friends who had known Jesus, and the 11 of them, and certain women. Don't you love that line in the text? And certain women. They don't get names. And certain women. So the men and certain women, that little group, became the world's largest religion. They began doubling in size, then tripling, and then spreading the word about Jesus to the ends of the earth. And I don't know what happened, but can you even fathom what got underneath their skin so that they had the guts to build the Sistine Chapel and the Sacrada Familia and Notre Dame and even places like this? What moved them from being that broken-hearted bunch to get unstuck and build places like Cambridge and Oxford and Harvard and Yale and Princeton to educate the clergy and to build laboratories of science and cutting-edge discoveries in the name of God? How did that Holy Spirit that had sent Jesus into the heavens finally fill their hearts so that they were compelled to do audacious things like build St. Luke's Hospital and St. Joseph Medical Center and Shawnee Mission Medical Center. How did this little band of radicals who saw their hopes dashed the moment Jesus was crucified finally become strong enough to join the abolitionists who eradicated slavery in this country, who joined the resistance movement in World War II and were pivotal in the peace process in South Africa and Central America. Just before Jesus vanished into the clouds, he promised them, you will receive power. And they did. So how do we get that power? Do we get it by gazing outward to heaven? Jonathan Daniels was the valedictorian of Virginia Military Institute. As a young man, his faith journey had its ups and downs. At first, he thought he wanted to be a minister, but when doubt crept in, he thought, maybe I'll study English instead. So he enrolled in Harvard Graduate School to study English. Slowly, he was drawn back to his faith and shifted back to the Divinity School. And one night at evening chapel service, he found himself listening to the scriptures, singing the songs, praying silently, and the words of Dr. Martin Luther King begin to echo in his mind. I found myself alert, he said, suddenly straining to this luminous, spirit-filled moment, and he left his studies and went to Alabama and started setting up voter registration drives. One day, he and some other civil rights leaders approached a storefront. Standing next to Jonathan, 
was a young African-American teenage girl. When the door to the storefront was opened, a shotgun was pointed right at Ruby next to him. He pushed Ruby aside, and the bullet pierced John. He died instantly. That's what happened after he listened to the still small voice in the chapel in Cambridge. Weeks prior to his death, he wrote in his journal that he knew his own life was hidden with Christ inside the life of God. How do we get that power? Do we get it by gathering in a room with friends who share this quest? A couple of months back, I had had a full day here at church, and then I had a 6 o'clock meeting over at the home of J.J. Jones on the northeast side. We were planning the stewardship season, and the meeting wrapped up about 8.15, and I was exhausted and ready to crash. But on my way home, I realized I was passing just a block away from where the Imani Peace Choir, members of our church, and refugees were joining together to form this choir. And I thought, maybe I can hear a few of their songs tonight. So I dropped in just for a brief hello. And the the building just enveloped me. There was laughter, and there was piano, and there was guitar, and there was warm embraces from the Congolese teenagers and their moms and their beautiful headscarves. And the pastor, also from the Congo, came and asked if we could have a little meeting. And then Abdul and I, Abdul is a Muslim man from Somalia. He had some things he wanted to talk over with me. And I finally got in the car well after 9 o'clock, driving home, looking at the clock, thinking how late it was, and realizing I was no longer tired. I felt strangely alive and empowered. And really nothing had happened except for that I had been in the midst of that group. By the time I got home, my phone was ringing, and it was another immigrant, and she had plans she wanted to discuss with me about how we might work together in the future. And we were still on the phone at 10 o'clock at night, and then I could not sleep because I felt the spirit pulsing in my veins. How do we get this power? I have told some of you about this little strange novel called The Anchoress, It's a bizarre story about a 17-year-old girl. Her name is Sarah. She's living in the year 1255 in the British countryside, and she decides she'll become a nun, but not the kind of nun that helps people, you know, not the kind that is a teacher or a nurse. This is the kind of nun that just goes into a private, closed-off space, a cloister, and prays. She moves into a room that is seven feet by nine feet that is just tacked on to the side of a small village church. And after she moves in, they nail the door shut from the outside. There's just this little slit about this wide where they can slide the food into her each day and where the priest comes to receive her confession and where the ladies in the village come to seek her spiritual guidance. Inside that little dark space, Sarah tries desperately to access God's power. She reads the scripture. She prays. She denies herself food and sleep, but still she does not feel God's power. The priest comes and is no help. 
But the ladies that she counsels in the village are helpful. As she listens to their stories of domestic violence and teen pregnancy and economic oppression put upon them by the feudal lords, Sarah begins to come alive. She begins some feeling some kind of energy within her own life and wonders if this energy could be the very presence of God. Maybe she doesn't belong in this space. Maybe she must no longer be a nun. Maybe she must leave, but then they come up with a new solution. She will remain in the cloister, but they will build a little garden, a little fenced-in garden around her shelter where she can step outside. And she begins to listen to her own life in a new way. On the day that she steps foot into the sunlight for the first time in years, she says, My rule tells me that I must come to know God by controlling my senses. I had tried so hard to be a holy woman, beaten my body and my heart against the stone. But that morning, it was as if I turned and love was there, simple and without rules. Sometimes power has been there all along. We have not been able to see it or claim it. Barbara Brown Taylor says, The ascended Lord was no longer anywhere on earth so that he could be everywhere instead. You know, the book of Acts was originally just part two of the book of Luke. Luke told the story of Jesus and Acts, the story of how the church lived out the spirit of Jesus. In fact, the two halves of the book were not even separated until around the year 150 when someone wanted a copy of all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in one codex, which was an early book. And so sometimes we miss the point that the church is simply a continuation of the life and the story, the mission and the purpose that God began in the person of Jesus. Jesus already willed us the power But in separating our story from his story, we have somehow lost the power source. Where do we get this power? The beloved Bible scholar Fred Craddock reminded me that I am probably asking the wrong question. The real question is, do we want that power?